right out of the headlines. I looked at Hebrews chapter 2. That's where we are, Hebrews 2. I looked at the headlines today, and I said to myself something. I said, self, what does this have to do with the world that we live in? Now, last week we talked about Jesus, how in the day of Jesus, people were all about worshiping angels. I got nothing against angels. In fact, somebody asked me a question afterwards. They said, Pastor, do angels have wings? I said, not all of them. The cherubim have wings, four of them. The seraphim have wings, six of them. The living creatures, they ain't angels, but the living creatures got wings. However, messenger angels who show up in the Bible never have wings, at least none that we can see. So we were talking about how Jesus is superior. We're going to continue that today, but I want to take and apply that superiority to the world we live in. Read the board. Get to the lifeboat. Everybody this week has been watching the tragedy unfolding in Italy, right? We've been watching the tragedy unfolding off the Italian coast. You know what strikes me as strange? You know I'm a coin collector, right? I have a nickel from 1912. Anyone know what happened in 1912? A little boat going across the ocean called the Titanic hit an iceberg. It was 100 years ago. That ship went down in the ocean. It's creepy. It is creepy because what happened on that boat looks a lot like what just happened this last week off the coast of Italy. We're going to get into that as we get into the Word of God today. So today I'm telling you, get to the lifeboats. First, Hebrews 2, 1 through 4, we're going to read the Word. So open up your Bible, open up your cell phone, if it's a cell phone Bible. Whip out your iPad, whatever you have to do to get to the Word, get to the Word. I want you to heed the warning. Both in 1912 and in what happened this week, something tragic happened to the lives of people on board a boat. However, how they handled those things was very different. Read this. Hebrews 2, verses 1 through 4. <clears throat> we must, therefore, pay even more attention to what we have heard so that we will not drift away. For if the message spoken through angels was legally binding in every transgression and disobedience received a just punishment... How will we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was first spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him. At the same time, God also testified by signs and wonders, various miracles, and distributions of gifts from the Holy Spirit according to his will. Interesting. Why do I call this heed the warning? Now, in the very first chapter of Hebrews, he's talking about how Jesus is superior, amen? Now, look at this. He says here, we must therefore pay even more strict attention to what we have heard so that we will not drift away. When you think of drifting away, what do you think about? I know some of you think about that old song from the 70s, right? No, don't think that way. The word drift away in the Greek means to flow by, to flow by. And one author said this, it's as if we should... Be attentive to the Word of God, lest we let it flow by and out of our minds. Sunday mornings, the Word of God comes out to you, hopefully through me, definitely through His Word, amen? Now here's the thing, it's going to flow at you like a little bitty wave. Now that wave can do two things. That wave can be absorbed by you if you're like a sponge, or it can go right on by you as if you were a rock. Now here's the thing, this word drift away also means to slip anchor. Y'all know what a sea anchor is? Ships have what's called a sea anchor. A sea anchor is a massive, massive heavy anchor, and it's on an extremely long chain, especially battleships 
all those types of war vehicles. These anchors are not meant to be dropped in a shallow area. They're meant to be dropped in the middle of the ocean so that the ship can get a, a, a grip in the middle of a storm. Now, here's the thing about a sea anchor. If the sea anchor doesn't get dropped and the ship is sitting still, does anything sit still in the water? No, I used to drive, I actually drove a boat before I drove a car. I lived on a lake when I was growing up, and I got my boating license before I got my driver's license. I will tell you something. You stop a boat to fish, all you fishermen know this. You stop a boat to fish, if you don't throw an anchor, what happens to you? You're watching the fish, you're watching the bobber, and you're drifting further and further out with the current. Soon, you're not going to be close to shore where you're safe you're going to be much further away in the deep part of the water where the power boats are. And when you're in a little bitty aluminum boat, that's very dangerous. What happened this week was that there was danger. In 1912, when the Titanic hit an iceberg, they immediately sounded all quarters. They immediately called everyone up, said, get your lifeboats on, I mean, get your life vest on, get to your lifeboat stations. They knew they were in danger. There was no delay. They stopped all the telegrams. They sent out an emergency signal looking for help. Y'all know what SOS stands for? There's, there's, two, there's, two, there's two sets of this. What is it? Save our ship. Right. That is what some people think SOS stands for. That's not what it stands for. I asked a Navy man once, what does SOS stand for? He says, we don't care about the ship. Save our souls. Save our souls. When a captain sent an SOS, actually it was a CQD in the Navy of the British Empire, when they sent an SOS, what that meant is save those who are on board the ship. You only sent an SOS when you knew you were in immediate danger and you knew you were going down. Otherwise you wouldn't divert other crafts away just because you were having a little problem. They sent out an emergency message. Unfortunately, it wasn't received in time to save the people on board the Titanic. What happened this week? According to the news, the captain of this ship not only was sailing where he shouldn't have been sailing, he delayed sending out for help by almost 30 minutes. 30 minutes after they had hit that rock, they were telling him it was a power outage, nothing to worry about. They were telling him to go back to their cabins, go back to their rooms. All this time, that ship is tilting, and it's tilting, and it's tilting. That's a bad thing. You know why? We'll get to that in a second. I'll tell you why in a minute. Because if you'll watch the news, you know what happened in those 30 minutes. The ship went from here to there. And suddenly, some parts of the ship didn't work so good. You see, he says this down here in verse 3. He says, now that message given by angels, that message communicated in the past. Remember we talked about in times past, God spoke in various ways through various people and various means. Spoke through a donkey, spoke through pastors, preachers, prophets. He says, in these last days, he has spoken by who? By his son. That was the whole point of chapter 1. He has spoken by his son, somebody with ultimate authority. He says, if, if all these messages given by angels was binding and God would hold them accountable for what they heard, if we ignore the son of God, how can we possibly escape if we ignore this great salvation? What would have happened in Italy, if the, if the captain had seen the hole ripped open in the ship and had responded immediately and said, get on deck, get on your life vest, get to your lifeboat stations. Remember, the Titanic did not have enough lifeboats, right? This one did have enough. And they were not that far from the shore. 
What would have happened if he had given the warning right away? Church, let me ask you a question. How reluctant are you to share the reality of Jesus Christ? How reluctant are you? Now, we always see the guys on the street corners when I was in New York or when I was in uh, San Francisco or L.A., they were always the street preachers. And the street preachers were always screaming and yelling and foaming at the mouth, and they had their signs that the world is coming to an end, you know, turn or burn, sanctified or french fried, all those guys. Remember those guys? Okay, those guys don't help the cause. But here's the thing. They are acting on a firm conviction that people's lives are in danger. You say, but whose life is in danger? I'm, I'm healthy, I'm young, I have a long life ahead of me, I have lots of time to decide, amen? That's what everybody on, the bo on board the ship thought too. Till it flipped over, till that violinist was caught underwater and drowned it. Remember him? The first confirmed death was the violinist in the band. Too bad. If he had just given the warning earlier, they could have saved all those people. See, here's the thing. If we ignore so great a salvation, how can we not tell people what we are firmly convinced of is true? Ladies, when you fell in love with your husband or you fell in love with your boyfriend, did you tell him you loved him or did you wait for him to tell you? Don't even answer that. I know the answer already. Y'all too chicken, you make us do all the work. Guys, after you fell in love with that wonderful woman that you're with, how long did you wait to tell her? If you're a typical guy, you probably waited about six months longer than you should have. Some of you waited about five years too long to tell him that you loved him, but you already knew it, you just didn't tell him anything. When you are firmly convinced something is true, you don't hide the truth. Amen? I mean, seriously. Do you hesitate to tell people that you love your children? Mothers, do you hesitate to tell anybody that you love and are proud of your children? Just say no and make me sleep better at night. Please, somebody. You know I drone on endlessly about my wife, right? I get these little emails, Pastor, could you please quit praising your wife? Okay, here's my answer. No. You know why? Because I'm firmly convinced that she's the most magnificent creature on the face of God's earth. Since I am convinced of that, I'm going to act on that. Gentlemen, I give you this challenge. If you love your wife, don't just tell her. Tell everybody else, because you're sure it's true. You know why? How will we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Even the crew members aboard that ship who knew the ship was going down did nothing. Do you know why? Because the captain said, don't say anything. Okay, here's the thing. What's the captain going to do, fire you? I would have told the whole ship, we're going down. We need to get out of here. We need to get in the water, swim the 200, 300 yards to shore, and save our own lives. See, here's the thing. Hebrews 2, 5 through 13. We need to heed the warning. We need to heed the warning. But also, we need to trust the captain. You need to trust the captain. I want to read you something before I read the Bible. I want to read you, this is one of my favorite poems, one of my absolute all-time favorite poems. I hate the guy with a living passion because I think he's an idiot. His name is William Henley. Anybody ever heard of Uncle Willie? William Henley? You will know this poem. By the way, this is um, very old. So late, late 1800s. Here it comes. 
The name of the poem is Invictus. This is the teacher in me. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud under the bludgeonings of chance. My head is bloodied but unbowed. What a goof. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade, and yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. This brother, I hear, nice beard, had the wrong captain. When the Titanic was hit, the first thing the captain did, he shut down all radio communications and asked for help. He was not proud. He was not arrogant. The captain of the Titanic went down with his ship. You know why? He would not leave until every last person was safe. And because he could not save them, he would not dare take up a space in the lifeboats. He stayed and died with the men. In fact, history has it that it was the captain who went to the band and said to the band, play us a hymn that we might die in peace. The captain knew he was dead, and he knew every man on that deck was dead, yet he didn't leave his post. Why? Because he had a duty to fulfill. Now let me read you Hebrews 2, 5 through 13. For he has not subjected to angels the world to come that we are talking about, but one has somewhere testified, what is man that you remember him and the son of man that you care for him? You made him lower than the angels for a short time. You crowned him with glory and honor and subjected everything under his feet. For in subjecting everything to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. As it is, we do not yet see everything subjected to him. But we do see Jesus. Now think of the captain that you should have for your life, that William Henley should have had for his life. Now we do see Jesus, made lower than the angels for a short time so that by God's grace he might taste death for everyone, crowned with glory and honor because of his suffering and death. For in bringing many sons to glory, it was entirely appropriate that God, all things exist for him and through him, should make the source of their salvation perfect through suffering. For the one who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one father. That is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brothers. I will sing hymns to you in the congregation. Again, I will trust in him. And again, here I am with the children God gave me. That's the captain of your soul that you can trust. Here's the thing. William Henley was an arrogant man. Read anything you want to about him. He was an arrogant, arrogant man. He thought he was brilliant. He thought he was eloquent. And you know what? He was. He was brilliant. And he was eloquent. And he used magnificent words. These words live on today. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. What an idiot! How can you be the master of fate when you're not God? How can you be the captain of your soul when your soul is bound to be judged by another? 
Only one who holds judgment over all things can be the master of fate and the captain of the soul. Each of us in life is responsible for our decisions. Amen? We are responsible for what we do. But here's the thing. The Bible says in the book of Romans that all of us are bound to the same fate. And that fate is a separation from God. Why are we separated from God? Why? Is it because we're evil? Is it because we're terrible? It's because we choose to live our life, our way, with no regard for who God is. There was a man on board the Titanic. You all know the story. He dressed in a woman's clothing, put on a woman's hat, a woman's scarf, and he got into the lifeboats to save his own stinking neck. When he got to shore in New York, he was one of the most hated men in the country. Do you know why? Because he was a coward. Because he took a woman's place in the lifeboat when he should have stayed with the men and died. That amazes me that a man could be that cowardly, could be that afraid of death. None of us should be that afraid of death. Death is the common fate of all. Yet Hebrews tells us right here, in bringing many sons to glory, it was entirely appropriate that God, all things existing for him and through him, should make the source of their salvation perfect. The captain of a ship, any ship, has to have a clear priority in his mind. What is my duty? My duty is to save the souls aboard my ship. If you lose the ship, but you save the people, then you are successful. If you save the boat and lose the lives, you're a failure. You see, the guy who left the boat early in Italy, who bailed out, we know he bailed out because he was in another boat. And they said, there's still hundreds aboard your ship. What are you doing? He said, oh, it's dark over there. What are you afraid of the dark? Go back over there and help us save lives. Help us save the lives of those people who are there. If you look up at verse 7, <clears throat> Then you see the qualifications, truly the qualifications of the captain of your soul. And this is what I want you to consider today. Who is in charge of your life? Who is the captain of your soul? Is it you? If it's you, I want to ask you a question. Do you know what lays beyond death? Just say no, because I know you don't know. If I say, who is the captain of your soul? Can you save yourself from hell? Just say no, because you know you can't. Do you know all sides of all things? The doctor thought Sister Angie was a tumor. The doctor who was educated, has his MD, has all the years of experience, he said you were a growth that was dangerous to your mother's life. Now later in life, when you gave her all that heartache, she might have agreed with him, but not at that moment. Because y'all were getting way too serious there. Here's the thing. Doctors are not God. Even doctors make mistakes, as we saw in our, our friends' lives. How can you trust your life to somebody who is flawed and who makes mistakes? How can you trust your life, your eternal soul, to someone who doesn't know what lays beyond tomorrow? There's thousands of poems and hundreds of books written by really well-meaning people that will tell you how to take control of your life. Seven, seven methods of successful people, or 20 ways to be more successful in business, five ways to be more happily married. All these self-help books 
written by people from a human perspective based on limited understanding. And yet we have this message that our lives are in danger and that God has set over us one who makes the perfect sacrifice. Notice this, it says um, in verse 11, for the one who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one father. You know what the word sanctified means, church? You should know this word. Sanctified is very important. It means to make holy or to consecrate. When they would do something, when they would make some article for the temple, they would consecrate it. You know what that means? When you consecrate a thing to God or you consecrate a person to God, they cannot be used for anything else other than the thing that God has called them to be or do. The articles that were taken from the temple by Nebuchadnezzar, right? Nebuchadnezzar took them, and he put them in a safe place, and he left them there. Remember the guy after him, Belteshazzar? He took them out, and he used them for a party. What happened? The Babylonian Empire ended that night when a guy named Cyrus marched under the water gates through a dried-up riverbed and took the city without a fight. You don't take what is consecrated and unconsecrated and use it for your own purposes. When Jesus came into our lives, he consecrated us. He sanctified us. He made us set aside for something special. You know what's also interesting? This word sanctified is the word atonement. You know what the atonement is, church? You need to know all these things. This is what Hebrews is all about, understanding what happened to you. Atonement is when you are guilty and you should be punished and someone else atones for or makes the payment for your problem. See, we were all enemies of God because we chose to do things our own way. Every single one of us in here was an enemy of God until the day you realized that by simply desiring to live your own life, your own way, do it your own way, believe what you want to believe, live how you want to live, that you realize that's what made you an enemy of God. It's then Jesus who comes in as the captain of your soul, as the master of fate. By the way, fate is a wonderful word, but it's a lie. There's no such thing as fate. There is the destiny that God has laid before you. I told you, the day of your birth, the day of your death, laid out in eternity. It's already done. How you live out that life is what's important. Let me ask you, if you knew tomorrow was your last day on earth, what would you do differently than you're doing right now? What would you do differently? Here's what I want to challenge you to do. Whatever you would do differently with your last day on earth, start doing it now. And if tomorrow you don't die, get up and do it again and again and again until God does call you home. Whatever length of time God has given you, it is consecrated time. If you're a believer, your purpose in life is to follow your captain because he is there to keep you safe, to lead you to that place. If I had never gone to seminary, I would never have met one of my good friends. If I had never met him, I would never have gone to Taiwan. If I never went to Taiwan, I never would have gone to Grace Baptist Church. And I never would have met Rick Carmichael, who asked me to teach a Sunday school class. And in that Sunday school class, 
were three really good-looking young Filipino girls, the youngest of which is still here. And then interesting, follow God to seminary. Follow God to Taiwan. The other stinking side of the world didn't speak a, a word of the language. Follow God to a church to adopt a task that you had never thought about, to meet a woman you had never met, and then 18 years later, you're still the most blessed person on the face of the earth. Gentlemen, do you see how this works? This is important. I'm teaching you here now. Just pay attention. A life of consecration is not, I'm going to follow God on Sunday, and I'm going to live like I want to on Monday. It don't work that way, honey. It's you live for God 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 366 days a year. This is leap year. 366 days a year. It's just like marriage. Once you're married, you're married. Amen, gentlemen? And we know who wears the pants in our marriages. Can I get amen on that one? Think what you want. We know the truth. Here we go. Verses 10 and 11 are real simple. The captain is the one appointed and entrusted with the lives of the people aboard his ship. Our captain, the Lord Jesus Christ, is never going to take you down a road, no matter how hard it seems, he's never going to take you down a road that doesn't lead to his glory. Remember, your life is not about you being happy. It's about you being blessed by being in the center of God's will. Everyone who followed the instructions of the commander of the Titanic either got on the lifeboat and was saved, or they were able to spend their last remaining minutes singing, calming their hearts, and preparing themselves for the death that was coming to them. There was nothing that could save them. There was no reason to panic and get drunk and fight. They were going to die. But they did it with peace because they knew that on the other side of death was a Savior waiting to receive them. I know that's a little morbid, but considering what happened this week, it's a reality. Nobody got on board that cruise ship to die. Nobody got on that cruise ship to lose their lives because there was no warning given and because the captain jumped ship. No one did that. Finally, Hebrews 2, 14 through 18. You've got to trust the lifeboat, brother. Did you see the lifeboats that came off of the cruise ship? Those were deep ocean lifeboats. You know how I know that? They had covers over them. They had supplies inside. They were meant to keep people alive for days and days in the open ocean. Those were amazing lifeboats. There were enough lifeboats on board that ship to save everybody. So why didn't they get saved? I'll tell you why. A lifeboat is no good when you can't get it off the ship. Remember what happened? They hit the rock. 30 minutes, 40 minutes. The ship is still... What happened to the lifeboats? on the other side, on the, on, the, on, the, on the upside of the ship. They couldn't be used. They were useless. They were lifeboats to save lives, and they couldn't use them because they waited too long. But when you get in the lifeboat, you better be sure the lifeboat works. Take a look at this. Hebrews 2, 14 through 18. I had a fired up week, y'all, watching this thing. It just, it was amazing. Now, since the children have flesh and blood in common, speaking of both Jesus and us, Jesus also shared in these so that, though the, so that through his death he might destroy the one holding the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who were held in slavery all their lives by fear of death. Show me a person 
who is a diehard atheist and show me a person who's not afraid to die and I'll show you someone who's medicated. One of my best friends is an atheist and he is terrified of death because for him, death is just the complete dissolution of all things that he is. He's scared. And free those who were held in slavery all their lives by a fear of death. For it is clear that he does not reach out to help angels, but to help Abraham's offspring. Therefore, he had to be like his brothers in every way so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God to make propitiation for, their sins of the, for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tested and has suffered, he is able to help those who are tested. This is the test of a lifeboat right here. Go back and look at it. It is clear that he does not reach out to help the angels, but Abraham's offspring. Remember, this is interesting. Angels can't repent. They're not given the privilege. Remember all the angels that followed Satan, the great rebellion in heaven, the third of the heavenly host that fell? Jude says they're locked in chains of darkness. They don't get to repent. No Jesus came to die for the angels. But he did come to die for us. So that even though we had lived lives that were wasted in stupidity, we could redeem those lives back through his sacrifice. Therefore, he had to be like his brothers in every way. Billy Graham tells a story. One day, he and his son were walking along in a field, and his boy ran ahead of him. And when he did, he stepped on an ant on an anthill. I think it was Franklin that stepped on it. He stepped on an anthill. And then he stepped back, he looked at the anthill, and he said, oh, Daddy, I'm so sorry. He said, what's wrong, son? He says, look, I squished all the ants. He says, well, son, it was an accident, right? Yeah, but I wish I could tell him I'm sorry. He says, son, if you yelled you're sorry at the ants, all they would hear is thunder in the heavens, and they wouldn't know what you were saying. He said, well, how can I tell him I'm sorry? He says, well, the only way you could do that is if you became an ant and went down to them and told them that you're sorry. God thundered at Mount Sinai. God spoke through angels. God wrote his law in stone, and men still didn't get it. We still didn't understand the heart of God. Some people, all they saw was the anger of God. Others, all they saw was the laws of God. Men always fight against anger. We fight against laws. We fight against anything that restrains our freedom. Isn't that true? No one likes to be told what to do. Ladies, don't you hate being in submission to your husbands? Just say amen and get it over with. Truth, men, I ain't going to ask that question. <laughs> I'd, all of us need to go home tonight, right? Okay. Anyways, we all chafe against the law. We don't like it. So what did God do? In the fullness of time, God became a man so that he could speak to us and show us who God really is through his life, through his love, through his compassion. It said, they said to Jesus, show us the Father. He says, are you blind? Have you been with me this long and you don't know that I and the Father are one? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That's how God gave his ultimate act of love was to allow the second part of the Trinity to become human, flesh and blood, to show us in visible, physical form who he was, what his heart was, what his love was like. We also saw 
the righteousness of God. When Jesus flipped over the tables, right? Got rid of the money changers. We saw both sides of God. That God is justice. He is righteousness. He is holiness. He is the law. But he's also grace and mercy and tenderness and forgiveness. It's all which side of, the, it's all which side of the lifeboat you're on. Now he says this in 17. He could become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God. That is your lifeboat, church. In, in the days before Jesus came, the high priest was critical because he was the only one who once a year on the Day of Atonement could take the last sacrifice. He could go into not just the holy place, but into the Holy of Holies where God himself resided between the cherubim. You know why they put a chain on his, on his, on his ankle, right? If the high priest wasn't absolutely pure and he entered the Holy of Holies, he would drop dead. And what he did, they had to have a way to get his body back out of there and send in guy number two. That's what it's for. Only the high priest could do that. So what does Jesus become for us? He becomes not only the high priest, but he becomes the final sacrifice for all of our sins. Remember in the Old Testament, the blood of the sacrifice only covered the sin. It never erased the sin. The blood only took care of the sin it was offered for, but the next day, the sin could be reapplied to your life. That's the law of God. Here's the law of grace. When the perfect high priest comes, and he becomes the perfect sacrifice, the blood of Jesus doesn't cover your sins today and not tomorrow. My apologies to the Mormon church who thinks that way. When the blood of Jesus is applied to your life and your life and my life, it erases the sin forever. It completely erases that sin. You know why? Because God knows we can't live up to the Ten Commandments. God knows we can't do it. He knows we're going to fail. So he had to do something to save us, and that something was his son. It was Jesus. It says he's come to make propitiation. Do you know what that word propitiation means? It's a nasty word. It's that long. I hate long words. It's hard to say. It's the word reconciliation. Reconciliation. This particular word right here, hyloskomai. Great word, hyloskomai. He was our hyloskomai. It means this. It only found one other place in the whole Bible. Remember the two guys that go in the temple? And one guy is a rich, fat, bald Pharisee. Don't be looking at me like that. He walks into the front of the church. He says, Lord, I thank you. I'm not like the rest of these idiots, especially that tax collector back there who gouged me for five shekels this morning. I am better. I am perfect. Remember that guy? And in the back is the tax collector. What's he doing? Smacking his chest. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Okay? Have mercy. Hylaskomai. Reconcile me to yourself. Bring me where I cannot go. Remember the whole thing about Esther and the king? King Xerxes? Remember that one? You can't go in the king's presence unless he calls you. If you step in the king's presence without being called, then you die. What happened to Esther? She walked in, the guards got ready to whack off her head, and the king held out the scepter. The scepter was grace, and it was mercy, and it was forgiveness. 
Forgiveness for coming in where she shouldn't have been. Once the scepter was extended, the guards could do nothing because that was permanent grace. That's what God did for us through Jesus Christ. When we realize we don't have it, when we realize we're never going to have it, and we cry out to God as a sinner, God, reconcile me, just like the Israelites living in Egypt, that blood is applied to our lives, to our hearts, to our minds. And once the blood is on us, it is never removed from us. And once the blood is on us, the angel of judgment, the angel of death, passes by. And we're not judged anymore. Not because we're perfect. We're not perfect. We're still major train wrecks. But once the scepter of grace is extended, it remains in effect. Here's the thing. Only one person, only one type of person is not welcome in God's presence. That's the person without the blood. Because it means they've never cried out, Oh God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Hylaskomai. Reconcile me to yourself. That's the only person who can't walk into God's presence. Because we've never asked for the forgiveness. We've never begged for the propitiation. Jesus provided it. I mean, if I sat $100,000 up here, I said, Ken, come and get it. Brother, you need it. And Ken says, oh, no, I'd be embarrassed. I don't want to look greedy. I don't want to look needy. Okay, sit right there. And when you walk out to here, you're still poor. Turn into well. No, 100000 bucks, right? Free and clear. He goes, I don't know. My mom and dad may not want me to do that. It's kind of embarrassing. Somebody might see me. Fine, punk, go away, poor. Here's the thing. Jesus stands willing to hylaskomai anybody who asks for it. It's not enough to need it. You have to ask for it. You have to humble yourself and receive it. The guy in the woman's dress on the Titanic who stood on the edge of the ship as women were dying behind him, he had a choice to lie and get in the lifeboat or step back to the older woman behind him and says, Ma'am, you take this last place. Okay? She wanted to get in the lifeboat. He was going to get in the way. He should have stepped back. Here's the thing about that lifeboat. The lifeboat of Jesus Christ waits, ready to receive anybody who will get in, who will call out for mercy. But there's a thing that you have to worry about. You see, our world is tipping. We're already at 35 minutes past the warning sign. Those lifeboats are getting to the place where they won't be used anymore. See, Jesus will wait for any who will call upon the name of the Lord. doesn't matter whether you're white, black, Filipino, Chinese, anything. doesn't matter where you come from, who you are, what language you speak. That doesn't matter. But that lifeboat is only open until it is set sail to save the last soul. Jesus said, if I go away, I'm going to come back. And when I come back, I'm going to receive my people to myself. Here's the thing, y'all. When the rapture of the church comes, that lifeboat is leaving. Because after the rapture, God's attention turns to his chosen people. And by the way, the church is not God's chosen people. We're the adopted children. God's chosen people are the people of Israel. 
And then in those horrible seven years, he will deal with his people. And he will hylaskomai them. He will, he will reconcile them to himself. But right now, our only choice is this. Are you going to get in the lifeboat? Or are you going to be the captain of your own soul and be the master of your own fate and take your chances? Y'all know who Blaise Pascal was? Blaise Pascal was a mathematician. Great mathematician. And more brains than me anyways. That's not hard. Anyways, they asked him once what he thought about Christianity. He said, I am a Christian. This is Blaise Pascal, mathematician, scientist. He says, I am a Christian. They said, why? Why would you accept Jesus Christ? He says, I looked at it logically. He says, on one side, I have an eternity of death hell, suffering, misery, all to live, at that time, 50 years of ruling my own life. Now, on this side over here, I've got 50 years of basically being a kind, upright, generous, giving person, you know? And when I die, I receive all the things that God has promised. Says, when I look at those two propositions, that's a fool's wager. It's a fool's wager to bet 50 years of life against an eternity of suffering. You know what the suffering in hell is? The suffering in hell is you get to keep your brain. You get to keep your brain and you get to know that today was your chance. Today was your lifeboat. This was your opportunity. And you said no. You sided with William Henley. You chose that no matter what happens, no matter what gods may be, no matter how thick my scroll of condemnation, I am going to take a risk. And I really don't get that. I mean, if you're right, if there's no God, there's no heaven, there's no, then great. You get to live your whole life worried to death, and then you get to die. If I'm wrong, if there's no Jesus Christ, if there's no heaven, by the way, I'm not wrong. I guarantee it. If I'm wrong... I get to live my whole life in joy, in anticipation, and happiness, and when I die, <laughs> I can know no difference. Think about it. We'll jump in the lifeboat. So, are you in or are you out? Last one. Are you in or are you out? One, have you heard the warning bell telling you that the ship's in danger? Yes. You know how I know that? I just told you. Your ship's in danger. Everyone on that, everyone on that boat on this last trip to Italy had no idea that some of them were going to die and some were not going to come back. They still can't even find some people. So now that you know that your life can end any moment, any day, car accident, cardiac arrest, brain aneurysm, whatever you think, I plan on living to 119. I don't want to push my luck. 120 is the end. I plan on living to 119. If I don't, that's okay. Because I know I'm prepared for what comes, right? Two, do you trust the plan that Jesus has made to ensure your safety? Are you willing to make Jesus Christ the captain of your soul? Are you willing to trust the one who knows eternity? It says here, it is the one through which creation was made and for whom creation exists. Jesus was there at the beginning. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God himself. Who better can you trust than the one who engineered all of existence. Think about it. Third, are you in the lifeboat of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus today? And if not, what are you waiting for? I don't want to scare anyone into heaven. 
but neither will I lie to you either. I tell you this, the world groans in anticipation of Jesus' return. Is it going to be this year? I don't know. The Mayans thought so, but they, they ain't here no more. Is it going to be next year, five years, ten years? I know this much. In a hundred years, I won't be here. I guarantee in a hundred years, I'll be gone. I'll be 149 then. I said, no, I don't want to do that. Okay. I ain't going to make it another hundred years. Okay? But I know this. I know whom I have believed in. And I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed to him against the day of the resurrection. And I guarantee when Jesus calls for his own, I love y'all, but I'm out of here. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word. Father, I thank you that we see in this a warning that we have been told in Hebrews chapter 1 that Jesus is superior to the angels, that Jesus has all to offer, that he is the author, the founder, the creator. He's all these things, Lord. And I praise you that we have heard the warning that the world has many false Jesuses. It has many false philosophies. Father, we have many invictuses, many poems, many books that would ask us to take control of our own life and be the masters of our own fate. Father, I cannot master fate, for I am at your command. I live as you give grace and as you give mercy. Father, I pray that everyone here today will consider carefully whether or not they're in the lifeboat. Father, if we have heard the captain, the one true captain of our soul, Jesus Christ, if we have heard him call that it's time to get to the lifeboats, Father, I pray we will go into the lifeboat of his sacrifice, of his propitiation, of his reconciliation. And God, I just pray that as that time comes, we will all sense that security. Father, if there's one here today who does not know you, then Lord, I pray in your mercy, in your grace, and your love, you would pour out into that person or these people the knowledge that their soul is of infinite value, that Jesus became flesh and blood, and he suffered and he died according to these words so that he might be both the captain and the lifeboat of whosoever will call upon him. Father, as we sing again about your grace that falls down like rain, Father, help us to consider carefully our faith. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.